Welcome to the Eurointelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau, and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today, we would like to talk about industrialization, deindustrialization, and reindustrialization. Susanne, you had a story this morning about how France and Germany are moving in the exact opposite directions on this issue. What is happening? It's happening because of the, the debt break in Germany that actually binds Germany to a certain fiscal rigor that France has not. So France is going ahead with his subsidies and ha makes it really an, an ambition and also a target to reindustrialize France. So here comes a country that is known for its food, for its fashion, for its services, an economy that was driven by demand. Now, all of a sudden, embracing industrialization, the moment where all the new technologies come, it wants to be a winner in this ecological and digital transition. It's, it's kind of a revolutionary moment in the economy. We all witness it. We're all going to have to adapt to it. So there will be new players on the field and there will be winners and losers. So, that, so now the way we're seeing it is that France is putting its its money and also its ambitions and political cloud behind these new plants and f factories for batteries, but also it has designed a strategy for France in 2030. They launched it two years ago with um, over 30 billion of public money, basically to kickstart some of the projects in hydrogen and energy and decarbonization of the economy but also in nuclear, small nuclear reactors. So far, they've been kickstarting over 3,000 projects as a thriving market in, in the economy already. On the other side, you, you see Germany, you have the constitutional break, Christian Lindler going hard down on this, uh, also the ruling in Karlsruhe, basically closing the, uh, the possibility for the German government to uh, divert funds into the climate change funds, using it that way to uh, subsidize companies, also the microchip companies, because they wanted to be this hub for microchips. This is not going to happen that way. So they basically lack um, financial capacities compared to the French. But also there's this narrative of the of Germany, the deindustrialization, their car industry, not in free for but it's, it's all about destruction. Whereas in France, the whole narratives are all about construction, as if there's no, there was no yesterday. And in that sense, the narratives seem to be very different. There's a different momentum. It doesn't mean that in the end, I talked about the magic, the magic of words. So it's definitely we are in this French magical world where all everything sounds wonderful, and we haven't seen yet whether it comes to fruition or not, and in what sense this is going to end up an efficient and a very productive economy. We are not there yet. But definitely from the starting block into this revolution, we see that France plays its full advantages, whereas Germany is bound by its rules and cannot play the same way. Let me, just, just for context, get some uh, introduce some figures here. I mean, Germany, the figures are different depending on whether you measure them relative to GDP or relative to value added. But the picture is broadly the same. This is just the level of the data is slightly different. In Germany, the industry as a percentage percentage of GDP is around 20%. It's higher if you measure value added and I think it would be about 25%. In France, it is in the UK and in the United States. Those three countries are very similar. Industry as a percentage of GDP is about half of the German level. And that has been a change over the last 30 years. They were actually very all very similar, but France, in the UK and in the US, industry declined, whereas in Germany it didn't. And in fact, in 2019, the German economics minister, Peter Altmaier, 
that back then, this was still the Merkel government, he actually wanted to increase the share of industry for very similar reasons that you just mentioned uh, further. But Germany hit its limits because of energy capacity and uh, production the, and other policies that intruded, like the phasing out of the nuclear energy and naturally the uh, Ukraine war. These were two huge shocks that happened to Germany that make it very difficult for Germany to pursue the strategy anymore. And as people are saying, Germany is, while there is a big push towards renewables, Germany is not a country that is particularly windy, nor is Germany a country that is particularly sunny. The only thing that Germany has is coal, lots of coal. But that's obviously also not the direction of policy because the country has agreed a 2030 phase out of coal, though that is a soft target these days. This will, even the Greens are saying this, they can't, they can't stem it because supply security will always be more important than any targets. So Germany is constrained, but one has to say it comes from a very high level and the funds, you, you, you're right. The climate and transition fund has been paired by about 60 billion. This was a four-year period, and this is about 15 billion a year. There's still a lot of subsidies mm. for industry. So I worry not so much that Germany is running out of money, because I don't think that is the case. I think that what I worry about is that Germany is using sort of its reflexes to subsidize the wrong type of industries. So they're subsidizing steel industries or big chemical industries, but they're not doing what the French are doing, which is looking at modern industries. The only modern industries, you mentioned the semiconductor companies, there's a huge 10 billion subsidy for Intel, which is just, you know, absurd. But the reason they did this is not because they, they have suddenly discovered modernity. It is, it is because the car industry needs those chips. And during the pandemic, they didn't get those chips. And there was a huge fracas about this. And so this is ultimately another old industry subsidy. So it's not Germany embracing brave new world. This is very much Germany protecting the realm. I think that's probably where I see the, the different qualities. That sort of narratives are different. I think these, these stories are very important. There is a lot more optimism in France about this. Germany is extremely gloomy at the moment. If you look at the popularity rating of Olaf Scholz, this is the worst ever. This has reached Sunak levels uh, of this disillusionment. And that's quite something after considering the UK history and Brexit and these four prime ministers that they have, or three, I'm losing count now. There's now talk of, we saw this in the news yesterday, there's now talk about Sunak resigning again and, and having the UK having yet another prime minister. Yeah, I think that would make it, that, that would make it prime minister number four uh, since 2019. <laughs> to be fair, it's very difficult to keep track of all the changing it prime becomes, ministers. But yeah, we have, to, we have to get a spreadsheet going. Oh man, everybody has their little vote of no confidence spreadsheet in a folder somewhere, right? <laughs> um, but no, um, uh, clearly the situation's not very good for Olaf Scholz. And also broadly speaking, it's not very good for anybody else in the traffic light coalition either. I think Annalena Baerbach is the highest rated senior minister in the coalition and her rating is negative too. You know, Nobody actually is. The highest one is, is... Oh, of course, it's Pistorius. Yes, Pistorius. it's Pistorius. He's Although I kind doing of... A good, he's doing yeah, a good yeah. job. I mean, in very difficult circumstances now. He's Schultz pulled, plucked him out from local politics, and he turned out to be a decent, very solid guy. I think the Bundeswehr needed somebody who was solid. I mean, they had von der Leyen, who was an absolute disaster, and then they had Karrenbauer, who just continued this. And it was a series of problems that the Bundeswehr had. And then there was Lambrecht in the new coalition. She got mostly headlines for the military jet for private purposes. So there is now a certain professionalism about this, and also a realization that if we support Ukraine at the, to the 
extent that Germany does, and Germany does support Ukraine to a very significant extent, doesn't do what Ukraine wants them to do, that's for sure, but the actual deliveries are significant. There's at least somebody who realizes and who actually makes the case for the Bundeswehr to have the funding, because at the moment, the Bundeswehr cannot defend Germany if that were needed. And it's a discourse that has changed in the politics. It's not just Olaf Scholz's change of... He's actually been much more ambivalent on all these things. He's, he's been a, a reasonable defense minister. And Baerbock is quite popular. But the rest, you're right, the rest of them is um, down. I and mean, Lindner, Habeck, Scholz are all down uh, in the in the public and the coalition. I think it has about 33% approval. Yeah, I mean, the, the real the real big faller was Habeck. Going from an extremely popular politician at the beginning of this to a not so popular politician now. Yeah. So I think too, as well, what's going on with France also speaks to Emmanuel Macron's, I guess, personal character and some of his qualities as a politician. You know, my, my own interpretation of what's been going on is kind of that you know, Macron is a guy who needs a project. He is very much that kind of politician. He had a project in his first term, but that got sidetracked with by internal opposition and eventually by the pandemic too. Now that the old project is kind of defunct, there needs to be a new project. And this is a new project that also happens to hit the right notes politically. I remember seeing a joke at one point here in France that uh, like a washing machine, Macron was always on marsh, but unlike a washing machine, he didn't have a program. <laughs> <laughs> But no. Um, so yeah, he, he's, he's that kind of politician. He needs some sort of big goal to build up to. That's, that's kind of just who he is. He needs that sense of dynamism, I think, to keep his own image going. Uh, he's, of course, also pretty unpopular at the moment and kind of needs to turn that around. Not so much for his fortunes, obviously, because he can't seek re-election, but for the continuation of his project so that people within his faction or within the coalition of groups that support him can continue onwards after he's finished. Basically, he needs he needs to cement his legacy, and this is kind of how he's trying to do it. There's also an element where uh, it's important to, to look at where a lot of these new investments are supposed to take place. The classic example would be these battery factories in Dunkirk. Some of our listeners might have been to Dunkirk before. If you've been to Dunkirk, you'll know that it's a place that has seen better times. It's one of these kinds of deindustrialized places that the far right in France have done relatively well in recently, whether it's up in the north of France or whether it's in places like Alsace-Lorraine in some of those parts that used to be quite industrial. So from that perspective, that, that makes sense too. Of course, the idea that you could reindustrialize these formerly industrial areas that have fallen on hard times is nothing new. I can't count the number of times that European governments have tried to press the reset button on these kinds of regional inequalities and deprivations in kind of peripheral urban areas. But I guess where this is new is the emphasis on both the energy transition and, and the digital transition. And of course, those two things will also pull in different directions geospatially because you'll have you have this emphasis on reindustrializing that tries to orient these new industries in, in places like Dunkirk. But obviously AI is going to center on the big cities. It's going to be Paris and Lyon. The thing about Dunkirk is that um, it has also a political undertone because there we have uh, Xavier Bertrand from the Les Républicains in charge. And he always was a kind of pro-industry type. And he was actually very instrumental to put to paper a strategy that um, 
identifies the sites and also the politics that actually needs to be put in place in order to make sure that these sites actually can can take off. So there was, uh, on a regional level, there was a collaboration between Macron and uh, a former challenger, Xavier Bertrand, who lost out against uh, Valérie Pécresse to become the presidential candidate from uh, Les Républicains. So that's a political context uh, as kind, of, kind of in the background. But I also think that, yes, he needs the strategy, he needs the narrative. Also, when you think about the numbers, if you look at the numbers that are now hitting the headlines, we saw that the Statistics Institute in was revising its growth forecast for the third quarter down. Uh, it was before it was the 0.1 growth rate, and then all of a sudden it was a minus 0.1. It's still not big, but it's still the direction sort of that counts that make people very nervous. Uh, employment growth is still holding up, and the, the idea of a narrative that is positive of all these news of showing up on new sites, showing that uh, there will be a factory that produces as a process as necessary for artificial intelligence. All these kind of things are good news that sort of try to counter the idea of doom and gloom, a recession, anything that comes up that could lead or could suggest that uh, France is going the same way as Germany. Germany has now two or three quarters of uh, negative growth. Um, so France definitely wants to avoid that. And by keeping up that narrative and the, the headlines with these positive news, they hope to steer through that and, and keeping the momentum on the employment side around if that were to turn, if we were to see a turn in the confidence from employers, that would have knock-on effects on the consumers and that would enter into a downward spiral effect. So this, it is a crucial moment for France to actually keep the positive side. That will be difficult. Look at all over Europe. We had a story today about industrial production falling in Italy and Germany, approximately to similar extents. The ECB rate increases are starting to filter through the economy. It's hitting domestic demand. These rate rises are having an effect. The ECB also said it will keep this rate in place at least until the second quarter of next year. So this, this, they will have time to work through and the system and take out any sort of inflationary pressures. Labor markets have been robust, one has to say that, relatively. We don't have these high unemployment rates of, of earlier times. But there is a, at the moment a conjunctural fall in confidence in most of the European economies. So I would think that if if the French thing is, is premised on the, the wave of optimism remaining, I think that is probably a little bit, I'm, I'm not sure that can happen. There are also some factual ag- arguments that I put forward first that Macron was very quick to um to buffer the energy crisis quicker than anybody else in Europe. And that actually prevented the the dive. They already kind of ditched that downturn. Then also the factual, the, the more strategic orientation of France towards nuclear power that guarantees a long-term in more independence from the energy prices, gas and, and oil. That also helps to present the industrial offer as a, a sort of more sustainable one. And also that was one of the reasons why they got the big contracts uh, like Taiwanese and Chinese customers coming to them because they presented that case to say we are actually a good and sustainable offer we can offer you some not only subsidies but we can offer you some advantages and that's why Chinese investors um, opted in some cases uh, for France over over Germany because of the energy transition the other thing that counts on or is often cited as a, as a reason why he French economy was uh, was performing so well was the reform agendas the pension reform he got over the the, the finish line and um, we, who knows what they're going to do with the senior employees. Uh, the fact that paralysis that was feared in the French government is due to the fact that Macron doesn't have a majority in the assembly 
as less severe than previously perceived. These are all elements that were the reason why international investors came still still coming in, into France. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that point about less carbon-intensive electricity production is also important from a cost point of view, because if you think about the changes that the EU has made to the carbon pricing system, so basically um, ratcheting up the carbon pricing system and making it tighter, carbon prices are going to be an increasingly important feature of electricity prices. So really looking into the future, less carbon intensive electricity is also relatively cheap electricity, um, at, at least if you're looking at it in, from a European perspective. I, yeah, so I do think there is an optimistic case for this French policy and a pessimistic case too. The, the optimistic case, I, I guess you could say fundamentally, is that there is already some positive data. Uh, if you look at inbound FDI, the numbers for France are just silly. It's way in the lead in Europe. It's not even close. If you look at the kind of amount of investment that France is attracting at the moment, and if you look at the structural factors, some of which you mentioned there, Suzanne, th there's also some reason for optimism. Aside from just the energy side of things, France has, in European terms, excellent infrastructure. The transport and digital infrastructure in France is extremely good when you compare it to its neighbors. As well, the French state has a, a relatively high level of administrative capacity. France has a kind of almost unique ability in Europe to lift and shift when it really wants to. And to, and this is, I think, underappreciated is the extent to which administrative modernization has taken place in France compared to other countries in Europe, and I think especially Germany. When you talk to Germans living in France about their experience with the French administration, it is like one of those science fiction films where they've been beamed into the future. They think it's amazing. You can do all of these things online. Um, even though there is a lot of administration, the process is actually relatively user-friendly, especially compared to Germany. And that's been, in the time that I've been living in France and visiting France, that's been a big shift here. The pessimistic case, I think, fundamentally is even if you produce this stuff, who is actually going to buy it? It's the demand case, basically. Part of that is the domestic demand situation, which at the moment, at least, is not looking great. And, and that's a cyclical thing, but it's also potentially going to be a structural issue if fiscal consolidation becomes embedded and you have another round of austerity. Again. The other side of the coin, of course, and we, we talked about this when we wrote about industrial production, is external demand too. So you have other countries and other companies and other parts of the world recalibrating their supply chains. And this has been another problem that has hit Europe. Fundamentally, the issue is kind of that France is, of course, interested in reindustrializing, but it's not the only country that is interested in reindustrializing. Quite a few other countries want to do this, and there's simply not going to be enough demand out there for all of these countries to do it. Yeah, I mean, we've made this observation about competitiveness-based strategies and everybody tried to outcompete each other, but ultimately these zero-sum strategies are not working. I mean, I do see France has a couple of advantages over Germany. One is energy policy, and the other thing is that they are focusing on more modern industries, whereas Germany has some of those too. One has to you know, admit this. I mean, for example, the German pharmaceutical industry has had its successes with uh, BioNTech, and they, there is also there are also some AI ventures out there which seem promising at this point. Also, some in, in some other areas, but Germany on the whole is not doing as much and focusing enough on those industries, whereas it is focused far more on older industries. That is unfortunately true for all for the entire political spectrum. I think the big disappointment of the German coalition was that even though they promised modernization, they ended up subsidizing the steel industry and the, and the pharmaceutical and the, and the chemical industry and all the big heavy industries, whereas the focus of the French narrative is, is a different one. That's, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, I think too, and this is another difference that you see 
was the sense in which these big things, especially the war in Ukraine and energy crisis, how these politicians reacted to this differently, not only in terms of policies, but how they came out of, out of it narratively. So there was, as you say, this idea that when the traffic light coalition came in towards the end of 2021, it was going to modernize things. And then, of course, the next year you had the war in Ukraine, you had the energy crisis, and, and that hit France and it hit Germany. Where it, it kind of seems in France like Macron and the government have tried to use that as an opportunity to pivot and look more towards what's going to go on in the future. Whereas in Germany with the traffic light coalition, it basically just blew them off course. Yeah. Um, so, Zana, let's talk about the elephant in the palace. What if Le Pen wins? we still be talking about modern industries, AI, and I mean, any investor, in, uh, foreign investor, obviously, take that consideration, that scenario into account. I mean, there is a political risk in France in the sense that probably not, not the case in Germany. It's interesting to see that we see Marine Le Pen having a lunch with a former chef of EDF, the, the energy company in France. So something that was unthinkable just uh, a couple of years ago in public uh, to be seen with Marine Le Pen. There's a clear shift and we can also see that the party is targeting at the moment companies at the local level, but also at the national level. So local MPs, are they go to parties and all sorts of uh, meetings with local companies they were usually excluded from. And now there's this shift. They want to sort of integrate that into the program. How? We don't know yet how that will manifest. But uh, one of the promising narratives that comes out of it is definitely that it would create more employment. And that's something that uh, also Marine Le Pen is keen on uh, promoting, having new employment. Can, that's some, it's a selling point for working class people. Uh, the critical issue will be uh, what happens then to uh, education because that has to adapt in terms of skills, skills levels for this particular new era. And we've seen that uh, Macron's very ambitious education minister, Gabriel Attal. Uh, he, he just waited for the PISA study from the OECD coming out with appalling uh, results for France, in particular for maths, to roll out his massive comprehensive uh, education reform that particularly focuses on the colleges, which is like for the age of, I think, 11 to 15. So this is like the middle, the first part of the secondary education and where they really want to sort of foster more the excellence in students. It will be hard for them to compete if they were to, if they want to respond there to Macron's uh, offering. Uh, so this is really wait and see. It's the early days of um, this new entente uh, between the enterprise sector and uh, the Rassemblement National. We have a very young and very able uh, party leader, Jordan Bardella, who definitely is very interested in increasing the ties with, with companies, how this will be reflected in the program, I think that's yet, yet to be seen. Yeah, and I, I think as well the important thing about this. So the, the first thing I, I would say about kind of Marine Le Pen coming, the potential of that is that at least if you look at energy and industrial policy, I don't think that there are any big, big differences in principle. No, she's for and, nuclear. She's yeah, she's for nuclear. She's yeah. for reindustrialization. Like yeah. this, they're, 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 this is a matter of near consensus within French politics at the moment. I think the important thing coming in will be whether Le Pen's attempts at further kind of normalization of her party of movement within French political and social life means that she will attract people with a bit more policy nous 
to translate whatever she's going to come up with in broad strokes to a more detailed policy program. I remember uh, in the last presidential election looking at some of the energy policies in particular and thinking, how the hell do you think you're going to do that? Where she would say things and big things in principle. And then when you looked at the detail, you just thought this is, there's no way anybody is actually going to do this. So that's kind of something else that will, I think, be key is whether she can attract people into her tent with the necessary level of seriousness and knowledge of what's going on to come to the table with workable proposals. Also, something else that you wrote about, of course, um, Suzanne, was the impact that Georgia Maloney's premiership has had on Le Pen and this new push kind of for more normalization. That, I think, does work ultimately in Le Pen's favor, that both French business people and business people abroad can see from Meloni's premiership that having one of these kind of populist figures in government does not necessarily mean that it's going to become a hellscape for investors. That that obviously helps because you know by by association it makes Le Pen look quite a bit less scary than she might have looked before all of this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it all depends on the leaders, obviously. The experience with Salvini was slightly different when he was in power. But uh, it's it's indeed true that Meloni has shifted the narratives and reduced sort of the scare potential, I agree. I noted also from your comments, Susanna, that there is actually one area of Franco-German conversions, and this is in the PISA studies. They both declined mm-hmm. uh, in perfect unison. I think on the math score, they're both... Uh, they're both very, very, very close to one another. It's you know, a sign of the sign of the times. I mean, the COVID pandemic will have played a role in this, and immigration. Will. Yeah, every, everybody's everybody's numbers be, declined. We have to be a bit, a bit careful in, in Estonia. In not the, Estonia, I think. Is, yeah, but it's, oh, did Estonia did Estonia improve? Oh. Yeah, they're one of the they are close to the top actually. Mm. Uh, they're actually the top European. Finland declined. Estonia went up, uh, but this is a size effect. I mean, you have five schools, and I, I was about, I was about to say this. This is like the five. The five students in Estonia boosting yeah. these numbers. Uh, it's, 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 one has to really be careful. I mean, we've been skeptical about about league tables anyway, especially ones that do international comparisons. There are so many, so many things. But it is true. I can say this with respect of Germany, also the UK, that the teaching hasn't much evolved in the last few decades. People are still still learning the same old maths that we got taught when we were young, uh, with not that much difference. And it's there are changes in our society, in our you know, in our sciences. That would probably require a new approach to some of those subjects. So I'm, I acknowledge these, these data are not without information. I'm not saying that they, they are useless, but the leak table aspect of it is the least, probably the least interesting, interesting one. It's a bit like polling numbers where the public focuses on the headlines, whereas the pros focus on the issues and the, the, the smaller print, which tells them about strategy that they need to, the weakness of the opponent that they need to exploit. Found- and it's a bit like that. I find it well, that was very interesting what you wrote one day about uh, what sort of maths would need to be taught in school to prepare for the new technologies. And that is totally different from the curriculum as we have it now, because that was more geared towards engineering. And now we need a different form of maths. Yeah, I know the, the idea was that, I mean, schools, if you look at the A-level a curriculums in the UK or IB curriculums, even which is, which is a better one and a more modern one, but it's still very heavily focused on trigonometry and calculus. While I'm not against calculus, the modern world of AI and of neural networks is, is much more based on data. We have a lot more encounters with statistical information in, in our media 
you know, everybody throws some statistics at you, even the PISA statistics. If you actually look at some of the way these were presented, they actually flout a lot of statistical conventions and there isn't a lot of statistical literacy around, uh, even among people who've had sort of good mathematics education in their schools. I would certainly change the, or reweight the, the various skills that are, that are taught and certainly statistics, certainly anything to do with data, data-based, discrete mathematics, combinatorics, these are sort of more, I would weight them higher and I would certainly do a lot less trigonometry, which has virtually no applications for, for, for anyone outside the engineering sciences. And we are not very attuned to these type of shifts that we are sort of thinking in terms of what kind of skills do we need. Sunak said we have to do more maths, but that's kind of missing the point. It's almost right, but not quite. And uh, <laughs> it's, we are very slow in adapting. The, the 21st century is very radically different from the 20th century. And I think our so sort of the way we organize ourselves is still not quite reflecting the changes that are around us. Yeah, it's, it's also, I think, the kind of education policy debates are where, to be frank, it's where informed policy discussions go to die sometimes. Indeed. And on that note, we'll call it a day. Thank you for listening. Until next week. <laughs>